RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, professors. This is Ashley Kim, and I am a sophomore majoring in psychology at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film The Man from Nowhere from 2010, made in South Korea and directed by Lee Jong-bom. The film stars Won Bin, Kim Se-ron, and Kim Tae-un, and I am recommending this film for you because it provides a story that is both action-packed and tear-jerking. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. All right. Welcome to RFU, a recommended for you. This is Rox Sommer here. I'm Soren Sorensen. And I'm Hugh Mannon. And we're here to discuss The Man from Nowhere, uh, South Korea's highest grossing film from 2010, recommended to us by Ashley Kim. Uh, and yeah, for being action packed and tear jerking. And I think that. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's a very succinct or economical way to get at this is a film that packs a wallop uh, physically, emotionally. It certainly seems to have stirred our emotions. Uh, yeah, causing one professor to nearly vomit. So and we'll reveal, uh, here we dive we'll reveal who that professor is in act three of the show. <laughs> So I believe, uh, Hugh, you're going to take us through a quick summary. So, yeah, and that's the irony here, of course, is that I, pro I prohibit my students in Screen 101 and basically every other context from summarizing plot. And I'm going to begin by summarizing the plot. So handcuff yes. me and take me away. Finally, a good plot. So summary. we decided we're going to call this segment Sum Sum, which is a terrible, actually, now that I think about it, horrendous for a podcast because you're not seeing the words. <laughs> so the idea is that it's, S-O-M-E-S-U-M, some summary, that's the idea. And so, uh, some sum for this film. An exotic dancer steals a high-value high heroin sample and stashes it with a loner neighbor at his pawn shop without him knowing. The drug gang kidnaps her and her talkative, precocious young daughter named So-Me, who Taysik, who is the uh, guy who owns the pawn shop, who Taysik had grown to like. When bargaining doesn't work and the dancer is found dead with her organs and eyes removed, Taysik is arrested but escapes from the police seeking the return of Somi and violent revenge against an array of underworld bad guys who are responsible. Oh, and it's discovered by the police that Taysik is an ex-military special ops badass who went into retirement when his wife and unborn child were murdered by a hitman right in front of Taysik in a horrific garbage truck accident which I'm sure we will also talk about later. Yeah, I'll make a one uh, quick correction uh, there to your summary because it, it gets at one of the things I wanted to talk about, and that is like the role of women and children as motivating forces for men's like revenge and action and, and return to heroism. So like that's a very familiar trope for male action figure movies. Um, to let us know that like they're good guys and their actions are just um, that they're marshaled uh, at the behest of women and children. But I like that it's sprinkled throughout, not delivered really heavy handed at the beginning, like one John Wick movie. Um, and I think that where the plot eventually goes such that he is not only seeking 
revenge and perhaps the freedom of so me, but also uncovering this entire like child drug ring, black market organ exchange crime scene. It feels less hollow, a use of like the fridging women trope where a woman is killed to motivate the actions of a man. And like, it's, it's there, but is what we have here, but it's also sort of followed up upon and the real, like real world, but also really highly grotesque and extreme forms of child abuse uh, and femicide are like integrated thoughtfully and thoroughly in our plot. So I get to be the dummy. Why is it called fridging? So it comes out of this like 1990s comic book moment uh, where Gail uh, Gail Simone, who was a woman comic artist, uh, pointed out the frequency with which male superhero characters in, in comic books so often had their wives or girlfriends or mothers killed therefore propelling them into superherodom. It happens in Batman, it happens in Superman, it happens in Green Lantern. Uh, And it was this big, like, late 90s call-out moment. But why the word fridging? Oh, because (laughs) in this Green... Sorry. Because in this Green Lantern issue, his girlfriend was, like, literally killed and cut up and, like, put in a fridge. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. So sometimes it goes that far. And honestly, we do have a movie here that goes that far too. hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. This film goes that far in, in all sorts of ways. Just appalled by the crass commercialism of bringing green lantern into this discussion. <laughs> and we're, we're trying to have a serious film podcast here. And we're talking about comic books Ew. already. Ew. I'm just, just so turned off. I just have to say, um, no, I, but this seems like an extension of benevolent sexism or something, right? Which is like this, this idea that the, certainly that this woman is being used just as a prop. I mean, it's her, her arc doesn't mean anything, her, her background or anything like that. She doesn't, she hardly has one, but she is her, her death and her kid are sort of used as this motivating factor for our hero, quote unquote. Yeah. She really, she is kind of a cipher too, because she, she's like brought into the film as an exotic dancer, although she's really not, she's just sort of sitting on stage it's one of the strangest i mean if it's supposed to be an erotic dance it's more like just an erotic posing for a couple minutes and then basically like goes back into the uh dressing room where she's been having i guess some sort of a relationship with a guy and there's some sort of mixed up crime disaster that occurs she leaves with the heroine and then has to find a place to stash it it winds up stashed with the hero of the film unbeknownst to him that's really critical yeah. too that he does not know that he's involved in this crime network thing. A crime network thing that we're, we're, we're tap dancing around that IMDB seemed to, um, it was so easy on the, on the tip of their tongue here just to call it a drug and organ trafficking ring. I mean, you know, so that's <laughs> so as if that that was like a, that's a, a thing that happens all the time. And all of these, you know, we've, we've got these things happening in Cranston, Rhode Island, and just as I'm sure you do in central Massachusetts. Um, but yeah, so so uh, it and, and then what what unfolds and we've already mentioned, um, if I might call it the John Wicky verse, uh, we, we've we've already got um, a promised uh, episodes four, five, and six of that, um, and 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 I believe the team responsible for uh, the original John Wick are remaking. Uh, this film, The Man from Nowhere, um, which yes. I, I, I almost, it's, it's like too cynical a thing to even imagine. And then it's the top of the, if you Google this film, that's the first thing that comes up. It's like, you know, that this is being remade by the John Wick team. Whereas I imagine they had already informally ripped it off with John Wick. 
So I'm really confused. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I'm not. Yeah, we, we were saying, uh, Rox and I were, were talking briefly before this just about how I, I looked up a list. There were some, something like 40 or 50 uh, revenge-themed South Korean films in the last yeah. 20 years. And, and so this is, this is a sort of, and this is, I, I, I guess, with Old Boy and, and, and several others, kind of one of the best or one of, one of the most highly regarded. Um, and I'm not all that familiar with the genre, and I've seen the John Wick films, but that's the first thing I thought of, which was that this seems like a, uh, that, that John Wick, this sort of teed up the John Wick thing. Uh, you know, so why remake it at all? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like within the first, like, 15 minutes before I even knew where the story was really going. I was like, if this was an American movie, it would star Canadian actor Keanu Reeves. <laughs> like Juan Bin has like big Keanu energy and the connections extend beyond plot to characterization. And that, that we get this uh, protagonist, Hey sick played by Juan Bin who like barely speaks <laughs> for much of the movie um, and is doing a lot of his acting like physically um, or with his face, including a face that is for two thirds of the film film highly obscured by long locks of hair. Hair, which, um, which is a great segue <laughs> to something I'm an expert in. Um, and, and I think Hugh <laughs> wants to talk about a little bit, um, <laughs> which is some of the hair scenes in this movie. <laughs> Well, so it's it's a it's a coiffure inspired <laughs> film for sure. I mean, it's a film where like haircuts are varied and and you know widely all over the map, and um, beautifully done. But uh, you know, you you get the sense at the point, and this is kind of a classic trope too, where Taysik shaves his the sides of his hair and kind of cuts the top himself. Of course, he doesn't have anybody else do it. He's the ultimate loner. It should be pointed out, right? Um, and when he does that, that's the transformative point when you know all hell's going to break loose with the bad guys. Um, but we've seen this, and we've seen it, and we've seen it, and we've seen it. My favorite version of it is in um, The Long Kiss Goodnight, where Gina Davis you know, does this total transformation. She realizes who her amnesiac self was and, and you know, completely changes her hair and, of course, cuts it really short. Um, and that's just, we, we know this trope so well that nothing needs to be said about it. But I just wonder if, you know, and, and so like the key torture device in this film is a hairdryer. That almost seemed to me to be like a joke that this film knows that it's all about the hair. And so that when it comes time to torture the uh, uh, exotic dancer in one of the early scenes of the film with her daughter present in the room, um, it's done with a hairdryer. <laughs> And I just, I, I don't even know what to do with that. It's such a bizarre move that I've got to believe that they're highly conscious of, of the fact that they're doing this. And so also uh, adding into this is the fact that some of the gangsters have these just really rad Duran Duran-esque sort of, <laughs> not not the main Duran Duran guy, but the second Duran Duran guy, like that sort of a haircut <laughs> that sort of out perfectly outlines the face and kind of droops down around this. It's sort of like a reverse Danzig. So instead of having the devil lock in the middle, it's kind of both on both sides. <laughs> When there's two Duran Duran guys in a film, that's a good film. I mean, you that's know, right. That's right. I also um, was reminded of the Royal Tenenbaum scene with Luke Wilson, where he he attempts suicide. Um, and and then I was thinking about other places where people cut their own hair 
um, and 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 even using a starting with a, a razor blade, of course, in, in in both of these scenes, that it begins with a razor blade, which I think is just kind of this masculine thing to do. Rox, what do you have to say about the hair in this film? To go on the record for action movie haircutting, transformative badassery, I'll just have to say this: this is up there, but does not quite surpass my favorite, which is Demi Moore's in GI Jane. Oh, good call. Where yeah. she like shaves her head and and like straight like has hair down her to her ass and takes takes the razor like straight to her head and that like legit did that and i remember my sister and i as you know ch- you know children young adults uh debating like learning whatever supposed figure she earned from the movie and being like would we shave our heads for she did she, it for real she did it herself i mean there's there's later cuts and i'm sure she got help yeah. and like what all that goes into making a film happens later, but that first cut she did herself. Yeah, they shot her, her. They hair. shot her doing it. From what they I shot understand. her yeah. taking that big strip down the middle. Um, yeah, but so in addition to sort of signaling, okay, he is here. He has arrived. Shit's about to get real. It is. It should be noted that, you know, in addition to having like the cloaked hair, he's been shrouded in really baggy clothes. Everyone's giving him a hard time. He looks like he's about to attend a funeral. And we do know that he's in grieving. Um, But here he not only sheds his locks, bearing his like serious and beautiful face, but also his body. So it is our body shot. And I have like done a little digging around and one bin is definitely like a sex icon of South Korea. Um, and this so is this totally is like unsurprising. that moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that moment too. Um, in a film that is largely not about sex. <laughs> yeah. Well, just so people can visualize this, right? He's shaving his head and he's just bare chested, ripped abs, looking at himself in the mirror. We get the full shot. He's seeing himself, so it's a kind of. But in, in this, he's so. going. Ba- it's it's in, it's a it's a different kind of transformation than Demi Moore in GI Jane because GI Jane is in a process of becoming in that shot, and he's going back to, to his yeah. old. He's kind of you know uh, uh, military intelligence person or what you know th- this kind of badass that we that we mentioned before. So he's in a way, it's like he's out of practice, and yet he's still a better fighter than everybody. Yeah. You know, he's going to encounter, um, but he's going backwards to and and what's what. What I found to be really strange was all it took was that kind of emo, you know, gothy hairdo to make him look like he was like 19 years old. And then when he when yeah. he took his hair off, he, he all of a sudden he looked like he was 40 years old or something, which I, it was just yeah. I, I thought that was sort of uncanny because he it's clearly him. But you don't you really don't recognize him with the hair off because his face is revealed. And all of a sudden you're dealing with this this guy, this this face instead of the hair. Yeah. Um. So, you know. Ash said action-packed and tear-jerking. And so I'm wondering if we sort of take these case by case and talk a little bit about the action we find here. We've mentioned the sort of disturbing torture scene with the hairdryer and that these he has these two imminent foes that are these brother gangsters who are constantly trying to like foist him upon all their enemies, hoping that like the police take him in, which they do, but he escapes or uh, that one of their rivals will kill him thinking he's an emissary for them uh, while he's running their errands trying to get in exchange for so me. Um, But much of the action sequences with them as well as many of their henchmen is like played a bit for comedy. Um, He's clearly the more uh, experienced fighter. Uh, But 
but there still are some really remarkable action sequences. And I have something to say about like who his perhaps real foe is, or, you know, this interesting bromance <laughs> uh, rival that, that like reveals itself slowly yeah. or over the course of the film. But I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts. I don't, do you want to like set the scene for what sort of action we're, we're getting in this movie? I mean, I will say, yeah, I, I think like this, this film hit me hard, like viscerally. And there were a couple things in the film um, that just almost made me nauseous. They weren't the fight scenes so much though. Although I could easily see someone having that response to them because there's a lot of stabbiness going on. Um, it's, it's a lot of knife play and a lot of people getting, <laughs> I don't know even how, how to describe this, but just like repeated percussive stabs in the chest over and over right up against the camera. And that sort of action um, is something I think, you know, I, I, I think it's absolutely fair to say that we've come to expect from certain types of like Asian martial arts films. Uh, and this film delivers the goods completely in a couple of really extended fight sequences. But it's it, it also is a film. I, I mean, this this plays into some other concerns I've got with it. Not concerns, but I mean, things uh, elements of this film that I think are actually really great, which is that the film is very material. Like this is not a film that's about cyber anything. This is not a film that, you know, there's like one scene where you see like a screen on screen and they look something up. The FBI uh, look something up related to the FBI and then the scene's over. And the rest e- of this they're gonna email the White House, you see like a browser. And yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's totally it's, it's very low, low fi in a way, low tech. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the way I described it when I was taking notes on it is that the the plot is entirely non-preposterous. I mean, there's some crazy things going on in this film, extreme things, but the way it plays out is it's just kind of, it, you know, not mundane, but just like very worldly. And so the the violence seems that way too, like very much kind of like part of the inertia and the gravity of the real world and lots of people just getting stabbed and punched and hit and thrown and tossed. Um, but not in some sort of hyperbolic way, in a way that really kind of like hits you. <laughs> well, and it's it's taking it's definitely taking sound cues from horror movies too. I mean, it's it's not just this this sort of either Hong Kong action or kung fu tradition or revenge films from South Korea. There's also this kind of pretty intense gore and and stylized blood spatter and 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 those sorts of things and 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 a lot fewer guns than would be present in an American film. Although you know that's maybe chalked up to it being harder to get guns in in South Korea than in the United States, although there are guns in this film. Um, but it's, it, there, yeah, there's a lot of hand-to-hand combat and a lot of knives and a hatchet and, you know, the, these sorts of things. And and then, of course, um, um, anesthesia and, and needles and, uh, and and a hairdryer, aforementioned, is a nail gun at one point. Um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot going on with violence um, in this film. So if that's something that appeals to you, which I have to I have to I'm embarrassed to say it does appeal to me I really I, movies like this that are so choreographed so well and and so fast in their in the way that they play out and the editing and everything else um I, it was I just found it really appealing and kind of fun even though it was in a kind of a gross way yeah I mean there I, I will say that there is a fair amount of gunplay too but I think actually the two are thought together like knife play and gunplay are actually like synchronized or or uh, I don't like they're dancing a nice dance in this film uh, in that he is such a sharp shooter. Uh, What you don't get is uh, what you would get in many action films where like they, they are shooting at each other constantly and yet somehow not getting hit. That always happens. Or like this guy is supposedly so such a warrior and yet he's like, 
hitting all around the guy he's aiming for. Here, our protagonist, Juan Bin, is really good with a gun, um, as is uh, this other character who I don't know if we hear his name, but I looked it up and it's uh, Ram Rowan, uh, who's played actually by a Thai actor. And we hear him speak a few different languages, including English at points in this film. Including English, right. Yeah, I mean, and there's stuff going on with other languages and dialects too. There's like Chinese and Vietnamese and part of like the gang's, uh, wars, I think, are, are based on nas- nationality or ethnicity. But but him and Juan Bin are both really gu- good with guns, such that when they shoot, they hit very nearly all the time. Um, and so then it's like, yeah, so then they there's these various points in their fight scenes where they switch, where they move from like guns to to knives and get personal and close. And yeah, Hugh, what you were saying about it being material, uh, is like it feels very intimate that like we're the camera's right there with them as they punch and stab. Um, I also think that the, the, the horror the horror sound effects has to do with how music is being used relatively minimally, like especially in the two super serious fight scenes, there is um, some music underneath at times, but the the soundtrack is dominated by sound effects of fighting. Unlike some other films that we've discussed, um, and especially Invisible Life last time, this is not a film that's got a spectacular soundtrack. It's got a very perfunctory soundtrack that sounds like an action film. And I don't even think, I think it's a complete afterthought. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that like what matters here in terms of the soundtrack is what's going on that, you know, all all the sort of Foley and the effects that are used to sort of simulate and overemphasize um, all this percussive action with knives and guns and so forth. But this material, this concern with materiality in the film is nowhere more evident than in that scene where Mm. uh, Taysik jumps down on the hood of the car and the gang boss is taunting him and saying, idiot, you can't shoot through this. It's bulletproof glass. And he puts the gun right. Mm -hmm. Now there's no way this would work in reality, but he puts the gun right up against the glass and he just fires the bullets into the glass until he affected, like he uses the gun as though it were like a jackhammer against the windshield of the car until it gets through. And he's got one bullet left and he shoots the guy through the hole that he's created in the bulletproof glass. You know, like it's it's a pretty great action sequence and very intense, but it's kind of like again, it's just about like the stuff of this world, and it uh, you you could take that even a step further to talk then again about you know to me the most horrifying like I've got a real problem with um, organ harvesting like Dirty Pretty Things is a film I can barely watch like there are films that just that do this and it's it to me for whatever reason it's it's just the most awful of the awful things you could depict. And so this is a film where like they there are small children who are being used as drug mules and they use those little claw hook pickup machine toy things in an arcade as one delivery mechanism for the drugs and the kids go pick up the drugs they take it to somebody else and they basically are completely under the radar of law enforcement as kid as kids that's why they can't be perceived 
Um, and then when they've sort of, I guess, outlived their usefulness as drug mules, their organs are harvested and especially their eyes. And so, you know, there's a scene in the film, there's this really amazing uh, sequence where we learn that a little girl has sort of had her eyes harvested and she's been killed by virtue of the fact that the protagonist of the film, uh, So Me, has, is known for like painting fingernails. And so we see the body of the girl who's been killed on the slab with the painted fingernails and you immediately know what's happened. And that's kind of the bridge that I kind of wanted to make to discussing the way cuteness functions in this film. And so lots of people have said online and quite rightly so that the the big um, homage and the big influence on this film is uh, Luc Besson's film Leon in the United States. It was called uh, The Professional. Um, Jean Renault film and uh, Natalie, and Natalie, Portman's. Por- Natalie Portman plays the, the young girl. She's not as young as the girl in this film, but, um, but the, the relationship's similar. Um, although the plot's very different, but the thing that kind of makes it clearly an homage is the plant. So like in the professional, I don't know how many people recall this, but um, there was this one last remnant of his normal life that he kept with him in this completely Spartan apartment. And it's this house plant. And so when Natalie Portman escapes at the end, she takes the houseplant with her, plants it, gives it a new life. And in this film, there's a cactus that people constantly are interacting with on the windowsill of Taysik. And it's not even just him. It's sometimes like the, the police come over and add water to the cactus. And so it's clearly an homage to the professional. But my point about this simply is that here we've got a film where the cuteness of So Me and especially the cute practice of painting little cute faces on fingernails is is central to this utterly grotesque, violent, very adult, super disturbing film. And so I, I think talking a bit about how cuteness functions both in this film and kind of generally might be an interesting angle. I, I couldn't help but um, be reminded um, of... A just a, a lot of um, international films or foreign language films that came out in the 90s, and I'm thinking of Life is Beautiful and Kolya. Um, I said him in Paradiso, I was a little older than that, but I, uh, you know, that the, they sort of depend on having a cute kid in them for American audiences to watch <laughs> them, and I don't think this fits that mold, but I kind of, I, I was, I was, I was, you know, immediately brought back to a friend of mine who I used to work with that used to say whenever there was like a foreign language film and you know on VHS, and you say it's got the kid in it, you have to watch it, and now it's like Minari or something like that, like everybody's, you know, it's another South Korean film, right, um, with this kid in it, and it's like you can't not like the kid. There's something about cuteness that. That transcends language, um, and you know, Bong Joon Ho famously said something like, "You know, if, if if Americans could clear this the hurdle of reading subtitles, then they'd <laughs> they'd realize there's a rich cinematic tradition in other you know other other places of the United States." I'm paraphrasing badly, of course, um, but uh, but yeah, no, I, I I thought this this film it it depended on it, on the cuteness, but it's also I was. I was ready to not be moved by it because I was told that I was going to be moved by it. Um, that Ash said that this is this is tear jerking, right? And so I'm like, this is not going to happen. And then of course, I cried twice at the end. I mean, it's like you get the the sort of double ending, which is that they get reunited. Spoiler alert! Um, you know, they they're, they get reunited, and I, we just have to assume people have seen either seen the film or they're here for spoilers. Um, and then he takes her back to buy her a backpack, which throws back to this this moment where somebody catches her trying to steal a backpack, and he he makes sure to buy her one and loaded up with all this stuff before he's essentially taken to jail is this, this is what we're to, to understand that's what's going to happen at the end yeah tear jerking yeah so this i mean since we're getting to the ending one thing that should be said is this film ends in a very 
surprising way for American audiences and that our like superhero gangster action <laughs> guy, uh, you know, has taken down a, maybe a good dozen plus uh, people in his uh, attempts to rescue Son Me. Uh, and so me and he is going to go to prison for it um, and it's interesting how we like we enter the film actually with the cops who are ending the stakeout of one of these major gangs uh, who are then going to be stolen from by Somi's mother uh, and we we end with uh, uh, with Tai Seek saying goodbye mm. to Somi and heading off with the police and their sort of repercussions for his actions, even as he arguably, uh, you know, made the world a better place or rid it of a few less than great people. That is the professional. That, that's sort of how the professional works, right? So he sacrifices himself for her. She gets away and can go on and live her life. And it reminds me, too, a little bit of the way the cute child functions in this um, uh, martial arts series called Lone right. Wolf and Cub. And in Lone Wolf and Cub, so in uh, the most famous and probably the best of these, it's called Lone Wolf and Cub colon White Heaven in Hell. And it's all set in sort of like Arctic lands and so forth. But the, the premise of the film is that the samurai is pushing around his young son in a carriage, like in a perambulator. But the, 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 the carriage is like lined with like machine guns and all this kind of like equipment, which the little kid operates. It's so bizarre and great. The, the film, uh, that particular installation, uh, White Heaven and Hell, at the time it was released and for like decades after it had the highest body count of any film ever made. And you know, and you know what series is an essential remake of Lone Wolf and Cub? Everybody, I guess, knows this. The Mandalorian. So Yoda, <laughs> Yoda is the analog to this little child. Now, the big difference, though, is that in The Man from Nowhere, um, the child is truly missing from the whole second act of the film, right? So the child is is what is is the is kind of like a MacGuffin, is what's being pursued, and it's what he's seeking revenge for. But she's she's not there as the Natalie Portman figure, kind of co collaborating and cooperating with him. She's just gone. Well, yes and no. So okay. it is interesting that that this film very succinctly establishes their friendship and connection and I think does it really remarkably well and does it in part by showing how she is like an equal or a peer. Like this is to get to the cutesy factor. While she is a child and does want backpacks and does paint nails, she demonstrates out of the gate a very adult understanding of the world, even telling him that her, his, her own mother is afraid that he is a child molester. And to hear a child say, my mom worries that you're a child molester, but like, mm. can I share your sausage? And right. like, what? Um, but that they have like a friendship conflict that like they th that she is kidnapped like the same evening after they have this big uh, fallout as friends where he refuses to stand up to her, to the cops when she's accused of stealing a backpack. And she tells him in a very like grown up mature fashion, um, I won't hate you. Uh, like, I want to hate you. You were incredibly mean to me. You're meaner to me than those kids who called me names. But I won't hate you because if I do, I won't have anyone I like. And thinking about that hurts me. So I won't hate you. So she's so mature. 
And this is the thing. So then they're separated. They get maybe 15 or so <laughs> minutes together, maybe even less screen time wise. Um, and then, yes, he's pursuing her this whole film and trying to save her. And while we have spoiled that she lives and he rescues her, arguably right, right. what we what it takes a while to figure out is that she, in fact, rescued herself and did as much through cuteness. So there's a scene where we are led to believe she is going to have her eyeballs excised, and he even is handed them, um, really like tossed them in a bowling fashion manner in a glass tube, and is really disturbing uh, sequence, such that he, is ta- he takes down all these bad guys, believing that she, uh, yeah, her eyes have been harvested and she is in all likelihood dead. She's dead. Yeah, he he says uh, um, she went to see her mom in heaven, but she can't find her because she lost she doesn't have her eyes. Yeah. I mean, she he's he's told that she is dead, but yeah. she hasn't like that hasn't no. been her fate. And I really was counting on sort of a middle ground ending where maybe she lost her eyes but was still living. I was um, too. Yeah. But but no. Oh my god! That's the whole reason he's after the jar is because he thinks this is so un. This is what made me ill is when he's looking at this jar of eyeballs and he's thinking to himself, if I can just get the eyeballs and get them out of here, we can have them surgically re... Because they're, you know, they've been... Oh, hor- do we know? Oh, we don't know that, yeah. but we're assuming, right? That if he can get the eyeballs oh. back to her, like she's someplace alive, but she can have her eyes replaced. I, I had just, a different reading, which was ugh. that this was all of her that he has left. Oh, he's talked wow. about how he wished wow. he had a photo. So I thought this was his, like... I'm going to save this of her. Oh my God. Else. That's so much well, he, worse. He has been, he has been, yeah, he has yeah. been told that she's dead. Yeah. Though. So, so this yeah. is, so this is how she saves herself though. And how she does it through cuteness. So in this like attic area with all the kids who run the drugs, she's doing all their nails. Um, but also that Thai character, Ramron is looking after them one, like what a role, like he's the bodyguard and like child, <laughs> child care at one point. Yep. And he's been injured by Wan Bin or by Tai Sik, um, earlier on and has a cut oh on his God, forehead that right. is constantly sort of, you know, exceeding its minimal bandages and bleeding. And she goes up to him mm. and puts a band-aid. A cute like one band-aid. One of her bright, cutesy band-aids. Yeah, a yeah. yellow, a On cute, his forehead yeah, yeah. and says, if I'm good, can I see my mother? And his eyes well up. And so it's really, so then in the final big fight scene, yeah. there's all this action where Ty Seek takes down like a dozen dudes, um, but then is left with this guy who could clearly have shot him, but doesn't. Right. And what we don't know is that he has in fact saved. So he has saved so me. And those eyes are not her eyes, but the eyes of the surgeon. And he sets down his gun and takes up a knife. And it seems to me that there's two motivations for this. Like this guy has cho- is essentially choosing to die, but he is both motivated by Somi's sweetness and kindness and like generosity and by Ty Six like a badassery. And so he he's respects them. Well, he's respect to he's he I don't think he's choosing to die. I think he thinks he can beat him. I mean he wants I mean, to you know, see. I, yeah. I mean he takes out that crescent shaped if I had that crescent shaped knife, I would I would believe that I could beat anybody with it. <laughs> um you know when that comes out in a film, when when you have a, a crescent shaped blade, you're you're gonna win. That's 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 what you believe. For some reason it gives you beer muscles or something. It's like this yeah. Oh I don't know. I th- I think, you know, there's very little remorse seen throughout this film for people who do horrible things per usual with action movies and they're bad guys. But I think in this guy, 
we get like a slight yeah, remorse. Yeah, he has a conscience of uh, he's like he's like uh, John Malkovich in Con mm-hmm. Air. I despise rapists. <laughs> like it's like you just murdered like a hundred people. Like, <laughs> but I draw the line at, at yeah. taking a kid's eyeballs out. Like it's just yeah, it's very strange. And I mean, he hasn't drawn the line at previous children's eyeballs. Exactly. No, he's 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 one. working for a children's eyeball harvesting operation, and uh, and he's just fine with it. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of like um, it, it. I'm not sure exactly what the. Uh, I'm I'm not even sure how to put this. I've got this like this story in mind that I heard when I was um, driving out to Oklahoma State to take my first job. I'm in I'm in the car by myself. We were ferrying two cars out, and I'm listening to this religious radio station. Probably should not have been doing that. And somebody was telling this parable, and the parable was like a basketball related sort of story. And the idea was that um, so you're on a team uh, playing basketball. And you're score, and you end up scoring no points, but your team wins anyway. And the reason your team wins is because Christ is on your team, and Christ scores all the points. And so it doesn't matter that you scored no points. All that matters is that you were on the team. And I know that this is completely skewed, but the the logic here is almost like without her putting the band aid on his brow this this tiny little gesture that's not even like part of the main like it's part of the story but it's just this offhand little gesture that happens kind of as a sideline without that happening the all taste seeks profound efforts that we see face to face on screen like the amazing 100 point scoring game that we see on screen cannot work without the little band-aid and I think it's pretty no. it's pretty slick, like as a as a plot element, like it's it, I'm not saying that it's Christian. I'm just saying it's pretty smart in terms of the way it it adds up, but it adds up in a kind of zero versus hundred proportion. It's weird. But but Ram Ram Rowan, um, uh, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of this name. I apologize. Um, but, but he also covers her eyes at the very beginning when they're torturing her mother. It, like True. right in the very beginning of the film, and so you get, you kind of get this th- this sense that this guy is not really down with violence against children, um, right from the first time, to- right from the jump. Like as soon as we meet him, he's like, "All right, we don't." He- she doesn't have to see us torturing her mother. Just with hear it. Hair Just dryer. hear it. <laughs> yes, you can l- listen and smell it. Uh, but you, there's no you no close no your eyes, but um, you can't but, close but your ears. It- yeah, and the and the eyes come into play right later in the yeah. film too. So it's it all kind of connects. But I think I think that character is already meant to be. Um, he, he's he's already been marginalized, or or, or the, he is marginalized by this Korean kingpin guy that calls him Viet Cong, um, and he and he's separating himself from the other guys in, in that he is a better fighter, he's a better shot, he's carrying the gun, um, and he's also the the guy he's also the guy that like is 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 protecting her in some way, um, and and maybe not letting her get exposed to the violence yeah. that she would have suffered. And I mean, all the gangsters in this in this film are turned against one another. It, it's by the way the the way that the gang side of things is is laid out in this film is super complex multi-layered very confusing all comes together in the end but like you're trying to figure out who's related to who oh those two guys are brothers oh okay and it's it's so mm. complex there are a lot of them there are a lot of underworld figures that are memorable in it but there are several there are lots and lots of them and right. we laugh at them too and and not Ramrawan. we yeah. never we never laugh at him the, the other ones are, are the butt of jokes often um whether it's their size or you know whatever they're doing or you know yelling into the phone and being angry or whatever oh my you know, god did you get 
Yeah. Did you guys catch that bodies exhibit, Joe? Yes, yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> donate you to the bodies ex- exhibit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which which I, th- then I then I was thinking was that that's actually a serious threat probably in this kind of cr- criminal underworld. <laughs> that's like literally what they're gonna do. Um, yeah. yeah. At the beginning, it's a joke, and then but if you, once you watch the film, you're like, oh, he was he was being serious. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Who's part of the bodies exhibit now? So I think we need to wrap up. I, I do want to read one of my favorite quotes. Okay. And it might be mine, mine okay. too, but let's let's hear it. Yeah. If it's my favorite quote too, then we should have a contest. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right. So mine is when one of these gangster dudes is on the phone with Tysik and trying to bargain with him to go to jail for one of these smaller crimes and promise he'll keep so me safe till like he gets out. And he's like, and Tyseek on the phone is like, no, 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 no. You leave for, you know, you live for tomorrow. You're making these promises down the road. And he says, the ones that live for tomorrow get fucked by the ones living for today. I only live for today and I'll show you just how fucked up that can be. Awesome. And yeah, so it's this <laughs> yeah, really- that, that was my favorite too. <laughs> Loved it. It was so Loved good. It. And 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 they're and they're just listening to this like what is he is he making a joke and he's yeah. just like I'm gonna do this action thing this action like God you know on the other line and it's it's like Liam Neeson and you know like I'll find you and kill you I do this for a living kind of thing like he's 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 like you know I, yeah that's that's a wonderful sequence yeah yeah and he's like what are you babbling about like they're not taking him seriously and it's such a great trope of like not taking the badass seriously yeah and for me this like returns to this other side of fridging which is like this. I don't know, to like evoke very briefly Lee Edelman, like this idea of like reproductive futurism and our constant investment as the child, as this like marker of what, of better times or, or, you know, we're always told to vote for the children. Um, And the queer is figured against this child as antisocial and futureless. And here he's embracing that. <laughs> like he's embracing the fact that he stands for nothing but what he wants at present, which happens to be the future of a child. <laughs> yeah. But I, it's that, that's where that's where this yeah, house of cards where it's falls like, apart. It's like utterly. folded together. <laughs> but I think I, I'll go back to that this is not like an innocent, like abstract child, but a very like worldly and adult one who then is left in a position much like him. Like so he's going to prison. Her mother is gone and, you know, she didn't want to lose him as a friend earlier because then she would have no one. And in fact, here she is. It's the best ending you could really hope for in a way. At the same time, I think it's a bittersweet one because she's on her own. I'd recommend this film to anybody who's got a tolerance that they can handle it. But, but my God, like there were points in this film where I thought I was going to have to get up and walk away. Like it, it's that, it's that intense. Yeah, trigger warnings or organ harvesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot to warn people about, but if you, if you like the, yeah, if you like this sort of thing, which I do, um, it's, it's pretty great. <laughs> Is it just that we enjoy the revenge? You know, in other words, like we need to see this horrific violence so that we can also enjoy the revenge. Is it that simple? He, he, but we we like the reason that he's doing the things that he's doing, yeah. and he's he is killing bad guys, as far as we were concerned. Um, it is it is problematic, of course, to 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 also always put like a, a person, like a former military person or a former law enforcement person or a current law enforcement <laughs> person, as the hero in these narratives. We're we're rooting right. for this person as if they're they're bulletproof and, and you know impenetrable like sense of morals and ethics. But uh, you know, no, it's like it's the fantasy of so many genres that the good cop, the good military man, um, or that like understanding that 
they once weren't so good, but they right. have become good and must return to their badness for the sake of goodness. Right, um, right, right. Which is to say, I think there's a lot in this film that is like delivers very familiar genre pleasures, but I think despite the, you know, the references to John Wick or the professional, uh, Ash is right that come for the action and the like, you know, martial arts fun, if that's your jam, uh, but also stick around and watch it again and think about it for a while because the motivations um, are genuine. And like I said, compared to one, at least one of those other films, uh, really pursued more thoroughly and thoughtfully throughout. And, you know, it's, it's gross or, or off-putting or upsetting for us, but I also think that it's really great that we're watching films um, from a different country where this sort of thing is not, you know, the gross out factor it is not so unusual. So you can like plug your ears, plug, cover your eyes, but I think it's worth a watch. Thanks, Ash. Thanks, Ash. <laughs> Thanks, Ash. Recommended for you is the Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. That's 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. Rocks texted, the man from nowhere. Jaw dropper. So much movie. Be prepared. Hugh texted, cool. Next day, Hugh texted, holy shit, Ash is trying to murder us with this film. Soren texted, just finished it. Wow. Rocks texted, we will have plenty to discuss. Hugh texted, I feel like somebody cut out my eyeballs and put them in a jar and then shot the jar with a 9mm Glock. Rox texted, For me, it was my heart excised from my body. Soren, which body part did this movie figuratively slice from you? Soren texted, A laughing emoji. Rox texted, I know I'm asking for trouble putting that question to this group chat, but Hugh already answered. Soren texted, I didn't lose any organs, but I took a few nails to the leg. Hugh texted, oh god. The nails. Hugh texted, for the outro, we should just have a computer voice reading aloud these texts. Rox texted, ha. Huh. Smart call. Hugh texted, the weird stentorian TikTok voice simulator was wonderful, but they got sued and now it sounds like a sorority president doing QVC pitches. Hugh texted, that last text should also be read aloud.